I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. And I still <clears throat> don't feel qualified <clears throat> to teach because this book is deeper than we're going to take it. It's deeper than um, almost anyone ever takes it. But to the uh, capacity that God provides, we're going to be very blessed. And uh, like we were in the book of Romans, um, I expect this is going to do some powerful things to us as a congregation. It's going to be a great benefit to us, not only theologically, but also practically. Because this is the book of our priesthood. This is, the, this is our Leviticus. Hebrews is to the church age what Leviticus is to the Old Testament in that it provides the parameters for a priesthood to approach the holy God. And unlike the Old Testament, <laughs> where only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year uh, with blood not his own, uh, we go in to the Holy of Holies, all of us together, all day, every day. And the blessings we have to, with the living sacrifice of, uh, of the realities of the New Testament is powerful. All right, The Old Testament was shadows. We have the reality. And we want to be able to operate in the reality. And so uh, we're going to get a start on it here today. Begin with a word of prayer, asking the Father to bless our time, asking Him to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before Your throne of grace because of Your Son. And Father, we're going to learn in this book why we don't approach a mercy seat. The, the pinnacle of the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat. It sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It sat beneath the uh, outstretched wings of the cherub. And yet here we are, Father, beyond a mercy seat. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Father, we come to a throne of grace. And I thank you for that. And Father, I thank you that this book is going to open our eyes to so many powerful truths. I pray that we would understand it, that we would live it, that we as a congregation would become a living testimony to the power of this book. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> some of the things that we get to do when we introduce a book is we get to go through some background information. We get to give you, oh, all the particulars and the details. And most importantly, I'm actually kind of thrilled that I don't have to cover all of chapter one today. <laughs> all right. We, that, that format's over. Okay. We did 66 weeks in Isaiah and 66 Sundays, one chapter per week. And then we did 52 Sundays in Jeremiah, uh, one chapter per week. And uh, we're not doing that for Hebrews, all right? It's going to take longer than 13 weeks to, uh, to cover 13 chapters in Hebrews. And I don't know exactly. Um, I, I've been praying about it and, and, and kind of meditating. We'll, we'll, we'll see as it unfolds what kind of pace the Lord puts us on. In, in, in Romans, it ended up being about 10 weeks per chapter. And when all was said and done, by the time we got through 16 chapters of Romans, we'd been in that book for about 160 weeks, all right? Um, is this going to be comparable to that? Perhaps. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody off or say, hey, we're going to spend the next five years in Hebrews. Um, but we could spend the next 20 years in Hebrews and, and, and not, not tap out on everything that's there, all right? Because there is so much that's there. And in particular, I think the first two chapters are the toughest. So if we can get through these two chapters, 
and be fair to these chapters. We're going to do very well with it. And then what follows, I think, will we'll be just fine. Um, so let's take a look at it. God, after He spoke long ago to, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, or it should be the ages. We'll discuss the plural of the ages there. And He is the radiance of His glory, that is, God the Son is the radiance of God the Father's glory. And the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. All right, there's our first four verses. This not only introduces chapter 1, this introduces the entire book. In fact, the message of the entire book is right there in those four verses. It is the glory of Jesus Christ. All right, And so we're going to spend uh, however long it takes going through these chapters to highlight the glory of Jesus Christ. Why He is superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Old Testament. It's all about Him. And so when we go through all these superiorities then the crashing realization hits us that we're not just talking about Jesus. We're talking about us. Because we are in Christ. And every positional truth blessing that applies to Jesus and all of His glory and all of His superiority and all of His access, the privilege that He has before the Father in His priesthood is our privilege. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And so all of these, these, these powerful things come and they hit us in, in, in a very extraordinary way. And it gets personal. And all of a sudden it just comes alive and every believer who digests the, the doctrine from Hebrews, and it's not easy. We're going to see at a certain point here in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, the author says, you know, I really want to say more about that, but you can't handle it. He wants to go deeper into the realms of Melchizedek. And he says, you can't handle it right now. He says, you're dull of hearing. You couldn't handle it if I did preach on Melchizedek, right? And so it's, it's interesting uh, when we get to the end of the book and he says, you know, this was a short word of exhortation. And he says, thank you for bearing up to this short word of exhortation. And you wonder, how many chapters could he have written if he really was going to spell it out in a more comprehensive way for his, uh, for his audience? Well, Holy Spirit's in charge of that. It's the perfect length for our Bibles. It's the perfect length for our edification, and we're going to uh, we're going to be affected. By the way, this um, I think if it wasn't for Hebrews, we would have never had a Protestant Reformation. You know, uh, we get a lot of attention to Romans, we get a lot of attention to Galatians, and they were key. I think they were key for Luther and his salvation. They were key for Calvin and his salvation, and clearly we get justification by faith out of Romans and Galatians. But beyond that, it's the book of Hebrews that gives us our universal priesthood in Christ. It's the book of Hebrews that tells every Protestant on earth that we don't need that liturgy from Rome. We don't need that hierarchy with uh, you know, the, 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 fan, the guy in the fancy white hat. Okay? We don't need the Pope. We have Jesus Christ the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
And so Hebrews came alive for Luther, came alive for Melanchthon, uh, came alive for Calvin, and came alive for John Knox. I think the great Protestant Reformation, yes, we give credit to Romans and Galatians, but it was Hebrews, I think, that took it beyond anything and said, look, we're not reforming that church, we're restoring the real church on planet Earth. And, and that, to me, is, uh, is extraordinary. So stay tuned for that. Like I say, we like to uh, begin any book study with an introduction, and typically in the introduction, we, uh, we give you the who, what, where, when, why, right? We give you all the particulars, the author of the book, the location of how, where it was written from and who it was written to, the date and all of this. And so uh, in all of these things, we uh, have nothing to tell you here today. <laughs> so uh, it's fun how you get to preach a whole series of messages on things you don't know. But as far as the introduction goes, I'm really going to introduce it with a four-point outline um, or a four-point introduction. Starting with point one, we have an unstated author. People that want to say it's Paul, well, look at the first word. Anything Paul writes, the very first word is always Paul. (laughs) Okay, here the first word is God. I don't think it was Paul, okay? Because Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul called as an apostle, Paul to the church of. Paul, anytime Paul writes something, in the 13 books we know that are Paul's, the very first word on the paper is Paul. Not so here. It's God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So we have an unstated author. Now that itself is not so bad. Um, Really, a lot of our books are unstated. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them say who the author is. We just have the traditions behind who the authors are. Uh, Luke and Acts are anonymous, technically. You know, we just believe that it's Luke, the beloved physician, and that's based on the internal evidence and external evidence. So we do the same thing here with internal evidence, external evidence, and we can come to some conclusions. We can debate it, but I think... uh, it's not something you want to fight about or draw a line in the sand or part fellowship with somebody that, that disagrees. <clears throat> so we have an unstated author, an unclear place of writing. I believe it was sent from Italy to readers outside of Italy, and we'll discuss that as well. Um, the, the main theory of, of some of the research I've been reading lately would send it to Antioch. If not Antioch, then some other center that had a dominant uh, Jewish Christian population like Cyrene. Uh, Zane Hodges felt it was sent to Cyrene, where uh, many of those Gentile believers had helped to plant the church in Antioch. Some aspects there. We also have unidentified recipients. Really, we have 12 and a half chapters where we don't know that this is even an epistle. We think it's a sermon. It's a spoken sermon. You could read this out loud, and, and it comes across verbally, if you believe it or not, it comes across verbally more powerfully than it comes across in written form because it was designed to be spoken. And again and again and again, many of the action verbs of this book are speaking verbs. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers. Okay, so starting right there, the very first verb of the very first verse, and we have the, the uh, emphasis is upon the speaking. It's upon the oratory, the utterance of this doctrine. And we'll see that throughout. It's only when we get to chapter 13 at the conclusion 
that we have some, some uh, ending that resembles an epistle, right? At the very end, the author takes the time to say, oh, by the way, um, Timothy's out of jail now and we're on our way to come visit you. And um, things like that. And those who are in Italy greet you. And so there's an ending where it closes like it's an epistle or like it was intended to be an epistle all along. It's just the readers weren't notified of that until the end, okay? Because really for 12 and a half chapters, it is a word of exhortation. It is a sermon. And we'll see that also, uh, I think, uh, clearly. So unstated author, unclear place of writing, unidentified recipients, and an uncertain date. An uncertain date. And, and trust me, there are the, the whole gamut of possible dates is there. I think we can limit it down clearly. Uh, I do believe that it, the, the book speaks to the present operations of the temple, that it, that it cannot have been written after 70 AD. Uh, I don't think it could have even been written. Well, I mean, if it was written in the 60s, um, mid-60s to late 60s, it, even that is possibly a stretch because the author speaks of the present ongoing activity in the temple, that priests stand daily ministering in the temple. And by the end of that siege, they weren't ministering daily in the temple any longer. They had plum run out of sheep and they were, honestly, they needed the food. And so they weren't offering sacrifices. They weren't standing in the temple for the last couple years of that siege as the Romans were getting ready to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. So I think we can date it in the mid-60s. I think we can date it after the death of Paul. Paul's not mentioned in this epistle, but Timothy is. And we do know at the end of 2 Timothy that Paul was really encouraging Timothy to come join him. So make every effort to come to me, right? Get here before it's too late. And so it seems natural then that Timothy did come quickly, that Timothy did arrive. Whether he was too late or not, we don't know. But then he gets arrested, all right? And then he gets released. And that's the, that's the information we have here at the end of this book. So who was the author? Where was it written from? Who were the recipients? Who's receiving this letter? You know, it's not the church of Philippi. It's not the church of, it's not the Galatians. It's not the Corinthians. Who is it? It doesn't say. But again, internal evidence, reading between the lines, it's, there's no question that, that the, the thrust of this is priestly. That everything in here is grounded in the Old Testament priesthood and then carrying it into a New Testament reality. And so I agree that uh, with many that say that the, the uh, recipients were themselves former priests. The recipients were our Jewish believers with an Old Testament background, with a powerful Old Testament background, but now they're lost wondering what to do in the church age because they don't have a temple anymore. They're outside of Jerusalem, and besides, Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. So we'll discuss that as well, these unidentified recipients. And then, like I say, the uncertain date. Internal evidence shows broad Pauline theology, but stellar classical Greek composition. Broad Pauline theology, very much in agreement with Paul and his doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of the end times, many things. This is very much harmonious with what Paul would teach. Paul could have written this book had the Holy Spirit selected him to do so, uh, but had Paul written this book, the Greek would have been entirely different. Paul did not write in this polished academic Greek style. Paul was much more down to earth in his writing style. He included a lot of more um, Hebraisms in his writings. The only writings of Paul that approach this 
are the pastoral epistles. The only writings of Paul that approach this level of, of uh, literature is First and Second Timothy and Titus. And there's a reason for that. Because Paul was using Luke as his amanuensis for the prison epistles. And so some of Luke's um, blessings to Paul's writing of the pastoral epistles come across by the, the uh, influence of his writing style. When, the, 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 the pinnacle of literature in the New Testament is Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. And uh, to put it in a pre- precise order, Hebrews is number one. And Luke and Acts right behind those. All right? So... Um, and I'm going to make the case here this morning that Luke is the author of Hebrews, okay? Uh, which is tough for me because for 25 years I've always believed Barnabas to be the author of Hebrews. And so today I get to stand and publicly repent in front of God and you and everybody. <clears throat> that and, and a few weeks ago actually it kind of became undeniable to me. I, I believe I would have put a gun to my head and I have to defend Hebrews 2.4 and say... Um, Barnabas is not the author of Hebrews, as much as I used to think he was. So we'll talk about that. Uh, I have a quote here from William Lane in in the Word Biblical Commentary. Um, He says, The language of Hebrews constitutes the finest Greek of the New Testament, far superior to the Pauline standard, both in vocabulary and sentence building. All right? And it's not being critical of Paul and his writing style, it's just saying that's who Paul was. That's how Paul wrote. He was a Pharisee by training, a a lawyer by training, and all of his Greek, it wasn't ungrammatical and it wasn't improper in any way, it just wasn't classical. It wasn't Alexandrian, it wasn't uh, of the polished style that Hebrews is, that Luke and Acts is, all right? And it's noticeable to those who study such things. Um, It's even laughable for those that really try to defend the Pauline um, argument, okay? It's laughable that in all of his epistles to all the Gentiles Paul ever wrote to, he saturated those books with all these Hebrewisms. Now all of a sudden, he gets a chance to write to some real Hebrews, and assuming that he's the author, he would then dump his normal writing style and write to them in the finest secular Greek imaginable. Okay? And it, it's, it's just, it's, it's amusing. It's hilarious that, that Paul would do such a thing. And, and that's... I think, a compelling argument against his authorship in addition to Hebrews 2. Let me grab that. Uh, turn, look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me here. And we'll notice, I think, the, uh, the testimony in verses 3 and 4 here that the author and his audience, none of them, were personal eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the first spoken through, at the first, I'm sorry, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. See that? So the author includes himself with his readers, calls them, you know, us, and says, hey, we are second generation." We are not those who heard from the Lord. So this rules out Paul. He heard directly from the Lord, met him on the Damascus Road, and spent three years with him in seminary training in the, in the deserts of Arabia. Paul makes a great big point in Galatians, you might remember, that the gospel he received, he did not receive from man, he received from the Lord. And that was a dominant point in Galatians. 
And so if you accept that Paul wrote Galatians, you have to look at this verse and say, well, Paul didn't write this. Because those verses are diametrically opposed. So after it was at the first, spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying, we're talking about the ministry of the apostles, God also testifying with them, that is with those who heard, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? The apostles. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Remember the charismatic gifts were the signs of a true apostle. Paul told the Corinthians that. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. He says, who's, who's doubting my apostleship? That was Paul's uh, defense to the, to the church at Corinth. He says, how do you doubt my, my apostleship? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. God gives those credentials to his apostles. That's what it says here as well. God testifying with them, that is, those who heard, the apostles both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And the author of Hebrews, whether it's Barnabas or Luke or whoever it was, now I'm going to stand for the the Luke position since I've ruled out Barnabas. Um, Whoever this author is does not claim to be an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that he got it secondhand from the apostles. And that's exactly what Luke told Theophilus in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He said, look, I did my research, I did the homework to, to present these things in, in, a, in a chronological sequence because Luke was not an eyewitness. The best clues come in chapter 2 and at the end of the book, I already read the chapter 2 reference here, that he was not an eyewitness. Neither the author nor the recipients were apostles of Jesus Christ were apostles of Jesus Christ. And this, this gets you into some things beyond today's study. This gets you into some other realms. There are folks that try to make Apollos the author of, of uh, Hebrews. Uh, people that try to make Apollos an apostle, which is interesting to me. I believe we can disprove both. Um, but it's easier to disprove Apollos as an apostle because Apollos was only familiar with the baptism of John. He didn't know anything about the baptism of Jesus and he didn't know anything about the resurrection of Jesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and explain the way of, of Christ to him more accurately. And if he was truly an apostle called by Jesus Christ, he wouldn't need Aquila and Priscilla to take him aside privately and explain those things. Because every apostle was an eyewitness of the risen Lord. Every apostle received their doctrine from the risen Lord. But nevertheless, Apollos was an Alexandrian by birth. He was an eloquent man. He was powerful in the scriptures. All of those descriptions are, are very much uh, favorable for the authorship of Hebrews. All right. <clears throat> but, the, and, and it may be, we may get to heaven to find out that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. But I think the, uh, the agreements with Luke and Acts, the linguistic li- uh, agreements with Luke and Acts are uh, much more compelling. We don't have any other writings of Apollos to, to compare with. So like we have with Luke and Acts, we have comparative writings to uh, correlate Hebrews with. All the medical language in Hebrews we pay attention to because of all the medical language with Dr. Luke in uh, Luke and Acts. At the end, let's go to chapter 13. 
You'll see these clues at the end of the book. There's some other clues. I, I left them out. We probably should have included some other clues. <clears throat> in uh, Somewhere, I think it's in chapter 12 and verse 4, it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. A lot of folks view that as evidence of, of who the recipients are and where they might have been located, uh, that they were sheltered from uh, persecution in a way that uh, Jerusalem certainly was not sheltered and other places were not sheltered. There was, there was a lot of bloodshed in a lot of early churches and a lot of towns, but not where these guys are. They have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So, um, But I'm going to discount that when we get to chapter 12, so I didn't include that in my introduction. All right, chapter 13, though, here's some other clues. Um, He calls it a brief word of exhortation in chapter 13 and verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I have written to you briefly. Now, that also is a bit hilarious when you count how long this book is. The 13 chapters, you know, 200 and whatever verses, I forget, I forgot to count. Um, But it's a very long book. And if Paul is the author, then that's a, a bit of a lie because it's longer than most of Paul's books, okay? Uh, other than Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, everything else Paul wrote was shorter than this. And again, it kind of seems silly that Paul would say, hey, uh, I've written to you briefly when it's longer than 11 out of, Paul, out of Paul's 13 books. And, and really more than twice the length of Paul's average uh, for anything Paul writes. But he says, I've written to you briefly. Um, Luke and Acts, those are very long books. There's an author who puts material out there and writes uh, comprehensively and copiously and, and uh, would be much more compatible with Luke and, uh, and the things that he likes to write. But there you have it. So that's a clue. Also, this word of exhortation. I, um, I believe, and a lot of folks accept the fact that that's not a generic statement, but that's actually a technical term. And that a word of exhortation, as it's phrased here, actually references a spoken sermon in the first century. And uh, that's how it's used in Acts 4.36. No, no, I'm sorry. That's how it's used in Acts 13.15. Let me grab that first, and then I'll back up to chapter 4. Uh, this expression, this, this uh, word of paraklesis, is used in Acts 13.15 when... On the first missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul are invited to deliver a sermon. And when they're invited to deliver a sermon, this is how it happens. This is the expression they use. So uh, in Acts 13, they get to uh, Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day. They went to the synagogue and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, If you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so they were viewed as visitors, as guests, but as traveling Bible teachers, they were invited to give a sermon. All right. Similar things happen when pastors today show up in places. (laughs) You know, I didn't think I was preaching in Kiev on that Sunday. I was there for two weeks with one Sunday in between. And I went Sunday morning expecting to uh, listen to a nice message and hear uh, Jim uh, Myers and and his preaching. I was looking forward to it. And then uh, I walk in, the first thing he says to me is, uh, welcome, uh, what are you preaching on? (laughs) Well, it turned out he was just messing with me, but uh, it was was kind of fun. I said, oh, I'm 
preaching on how to be prepared at a moment's notice. (laughs) But here's uh, Barnabas and Paul, and they're being invited to deliver a word of exhortation in the exact same expression, the exact same construction that we have in Hebrews as a definition of the entire book. And as I said, it's widely recognized that Hebrews is written as a sermon. It's written as an oratory to be delivered. Even back to chapter 4 then, the other use of this is comes in the nickname they gave to Barnabas. Both of these uses are attached to Barnabas too, by the way, which is interesting. Used to color my thinking into making Barnabas the author of Hebrews. But he was given this name, son of encouragement, son of exhortation. And uh, Hebrews 4, 36 is what we have the clue there. Here's Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth. All right, so he's Levitical. That would be in his favor as a possible author of the book of of, uh, Hebrews, all right? Because Hebrews is so overwhelmingly saturated with Leviticus, uh, with Old Testament, with the law, with the prophets, uh, with the Psalms. Uh, clearly a Levite would have a leg up for anybody else trying to write this book. The idea of a Gentile writing, it's unthinkable. Which is why Luke is never considered as an author. Because everybody knows that Luke's a Gentile. Okay? The minute you bust that myth, the minute you ask yourself, well, says who? How do we know Luke's a Gentile? And the minute you start to ask yourself, is it possible for Luke to be Jewish? Then you start looking at Luke and Acts in a whole different way, and then all of a sudden it hits you. Yeah, he's Jewish. He's big-time Jewish. He's Levitical. He's probably a priest, okay? Because of, again, the things that come up in Luke and Acts and the way they're expressed. All right. And so once you admit the possibility Luke could be Levitical, well then, hello, he very much is on the short list for who could have written the book of Hebrews, And maybe there's a reason why the book of Hebrews is so similar to Luke and Acts, because it's the same guy that wrote it. And by the way, Luke was the amanuensis who helped Paul in writing the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. So if there's any similarity with Paul's writings, it's in those final epistles where Luke was serving as his secretary. All right. So yeah, Acts 4... uh, 36, uh, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement or son of exhortation, son of paraclesis. All right, another clue. In Hebrews 13, 23, he says, take notice, our brother Timothy has been released. Our brother Timothy has been released and so uh, not only is the author a part of Paul, the Pauline circle of, uh, of ministers and workers, but uh, along with Timothy, along with the recipients of this epistle, they're all, they all have a familiarity with Timothy. Paul never called him a brother, <clears throat> called Timothy a beloved son, a dear child in the faith, fellow worker. Uh, it would be unusual for Paul to call him our brother Timothy. Um, but would not be unusual at all for Luke or Barnabas or Apollos or anyone else to call him our brother Timothy. That's another clue. Somebody in the Pauline circles. 
somebody that we've seen when we did our study on, you remember, on Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions. We, we spent a lot of time taking a detailed look at the different traveling companions and when they were with him and when they departed and, and, and all the rest. I think we can rule out Demas, right? He, uh, he loved this present world and he abandoned Paul and went off to Thessalonica. So he's not a candidate for the authorship of, uh, of Hebrews. Another clue in verse 24. I'll be seeing verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Now there's so many clues we glean out of that because the author is somewhere else besides where his readers are. <clears throat> he intends to come soon. And if Timothy is quick enough, Timothy can join him. All right, But whether Timothy gets there in time or not, the author is on his way. He says, I'm going to be there shortly. And that's, uh, that's his intention. That's his plan. Uh, greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. So there's a clue. The recipients have leaders. All right. The recipients are not a church, but the recipients are a group within a church. The recipients are a subset of a larger group. And they themselves have leaders amongst themselves. And then beyond that, all the saints, the wider group of believers in that church, in that location. We, we talked about some of those details when we introduced Philippians, right? Because there were overseers and deacons and the saints at uh, Philippi. So what do we know from the New Testament? What were some of the groups within the church? What were some of the you don't want to call them factions, but what were some of the, I guess it's not a bad term, if they're not divisive, what were some of the subsets within the early church? Well, we know that there were tensions between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And sometimes those factions became problematic, especially when the Jewish believers within the church were starting to insist on circumcision and, and other law observance, okay, Sabbath observance. And so the Jewish element within every local church sometimes was causing issues. <clears throat> there were other groups as well. Uh, Company of Freedmen. There were other groups within local churches that identified as groups that they would have leaders among them. Okay? So uh, I believe that these guys were former priests and they had leaders among them. Uh, then we have another clue. It says, those from Italy greet you. Wow, this sparks a lot of arguments. <laughs> okay, because they, they, it sparks the arguments both directions. Some people think, well, this could mean that he's writing to Italy. And wherever he's writing from, he's got some Italians with him. And, you know, they're sending word home saying, hey, we're from Italy too. Say hi for us. Okay, you can read it that way. Those from Italy greet you. Um, but it's more natural to read it the other way that he's writing in Italy and he is sending note uh, from them. And uh, that's the more natural way. In fact, that's the way that's consistent with all New Testament usage. So I accept that. All right, so those are all our clues. And uh, now I'll give you the, some of the traditions. The number one candidate is the Apostle Paul. has been the tradition since the early centuries of the church. Uh, many of the canon lists that were drawn up were drawn up with 14 epistles of Paul. Clement of Alexandria. Notice though, when he said that Paul wrote it, 
he went on to say that Paul wrote Hebrews originally in Hebrew, and then Luke translated it into Greek for a Hellenistic Jewish audience. And that was his, uh, that was his tradition. And that gets recorded by Eusebius, and it's in the earliest uh, histories of the church. That Paul was the author, but he originally wrote it in Hebrew and was translated by Luke into the Greek that we have it today. Okay? Because even back then, in Clement's day, they knew that Paul didn't write like that. <laughs> okay? And so he put forth this tradition. Wherever he learned it from, I don't think he made it up, but whatever he heard it from, he passed that along, and that's how he taught it in, uh, in Alexandria. Um, the earliest of the manuscripts that we have include Papyri 46. Um, it places Hebrews right after Romans in a 14-letter Pauline collection. Papyri 46, if you study the papyri, is, uh, is a collection of Pauline epistles, and it includes Hebrews. In fact, right after Romans, before 1 Corinthians. Most likely because of length, that it put Romans, Hebrews, Corinthians, and, and then got to the shorter epistles after that. Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, those were all in the 4th and 5th centuries. Those manuscripts, you're familiar with those? Those are the great Unkiel manuscripts of the Egyptian tradition. They all placed Hebrews after the church epistles and before Paul's personal epistles. In other words, it's nestled in after uh, 2 Thessalonians and before you get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So it's counted in those manuscripts as a Pauline epistle to a church. But beyond the uh, placement of this book among the Pauline letters, there's very little to credit Paul as the author. No church father other than Clement tried to defend the Pauline authorship, and many church authors uh, tried to explain why Paul couldn't have written the book. So the number two candidate is Barnabas. And by the way, the ones that held to Pauline authorship were in the East. The Eastern fathers uh, believed it was Pauline. The Western fathers, none of them thought it was Paul's. So Tertullian, Western father, about 200 AD, uh, or 210, a little bit after 200 AD, he referenced that this epistle was written by Barnabas. He cited a verse out of Hebrews and said, as Barnabas said. Okay, Gregory of Elvira, likewise, in the West. Okay, church father in the West. He cited Hebrews 13, 13 15 and said, as Barnabas said. Also, Philaster of Brescia, that was an Italian city. Uh, again, a Western church father. He cited Barnabas as the author of Hebrews. The Codex Claramontus credited Barnabas as the author of Hebrews, even called it the Book of Barnabas, okay? which should not be confused as an apocryphal book of Barnabas also. We don't want to confuse the two. Anyway, I, uh, I think Barnabas has a lot going for him. And for 20 years, 25 years, I always felt Barnabas was the author because he was an Alexandrian, uh, he had the Polish Greek, he had a, a Levitical background, he was a priest, uh, all these things are going with him. He was associated with Paul, he was associated with Timothy, there were so many things going for him, he was called uh, the son of exhortation and, and all of that. But I do believe though that he was an apostle. The Bible tells us three times over that Barnabas was an apostle. And as an apostle, Barnabas was an eyewitness of the risen Lord. And as an eyewitness of the risen Lord, Barnabas is discounted because of Hebrews 2.3, that he could not have been uh, the author. The author said he was not an eyewitness of the risen Lord. Which takes us then to Luke. Not commonly suggested, but very likely candidate is Luke. 
And the linguistic similarities with Luke and Acts caused many church fathers to credit Luke with translating Paul's original Hebrew text. And we already read Clement. There were others as well that felt Luke. Um, in fact, some said, well, Paul didn't even write a Hebrew original. Paul just told Luke what to write and Luke wrote it down and uh, had much more freedom than a basic amanuensis. Um, so traditions regarding Luke's Gentile origin, though, made him unacceptable as an author for Hebrews. But thankfully, most recent scholarship is dumping the uh, Luke a Gentile uh, legend. And uh, I think maybe by the time, uh, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe no one will teach Luke as a Gentile ever again. And uh, that could be uh, a neat thing to see for our uh, children's generation. Most recent scholarship is refuting all such traditions. So um, in the New American Commentary, if you have that, uh, David uh, Allen wrote on this. He also wrote a separate companion volume, and not only did he write the commentary to the book of Hebrews, there's a separate companion volume that's specifically titled The Lucan Authorship of Hebrews. And he spends hundreds of pages detailing all the work that uh, I'm just trying to summarize here in a few minutes. All right. Let me get through this, and then we'll proceed to the unknown recipients and then to the dominant themes and then to the outline and see how far we get with that and uh, take it from there. All right, authorship. This is the New American Commentary by, again, David Allen. Many have conjectured, some have conjured, but very few have been convinced in the search for the author of Hebrews. Most commentaries in Hebrews of recent vintage do not spend a great deal of time discussing matters of authorship and recipients. This is understandable in light of the multitude of theories available. Three observations emerge. First, it is obvious there have been numerous theories as to the authorship of the book. Second, suggestions made by the patristic, medieval, and Reformation scholars almost always involve persons who are well-known apostles or who were associated with the apostles in some close fashion, such as Luke, Apollos, Barnabas, and Clement of Rome. I didn't even mention Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome was considered possible because in his book, not Bible, but Apocrypha, in his book, he quoted Hebrews. And so since he quoted Hebrews and his book was written in 95 AD, that gives us a pretty good early clue for how early the book of Hebrews is. Canonicity may have played a role in the theories of authorship among the church fathers, but names suggested for possible authorship always involve those of the apostolic band. Third, not only is there no agreement as to authorship, but all other matters of background providence, recipients, all of that, they've also been open to speculation from the church fathers until the present. The historical testimony. The historical testimony regarding the authorship of Hebrews begins with Clement of Rome's clear use of the epistle in his letter to the Corinthians. What we have is First Clement today. Again, doesn't belong in the Bible, but it is a well-regarded uh, apocryphal text. If Clement's epistle to the Corinthians can be successfully dated near the end of the first century, which is the traditional view, then the historical testimony concerning the authorship of Hebrews predates the second century. Clement's silence as to the authorship of Hebrews may indicate that he himself did not consider Paul to be the author. Yet, as always, the argument from silence is weak and too much should not be made of it. Nor should much be made of the view that Clement of Rome could have been the author of Hebrews, since chronological, not to mention stylistic considerations, would militate against it. Yeah, the, the, the quality of Greek is nowhere near uh, the Hebrews level in First Clement. 
Since Hebrews was known early in Rome, as shown by Clement's use, how is one to explain the silence of the Roman church as to Clement's authorship if he were or could have been considered the author? Yeah, he's the bishop of Rome, and, or he's writing to uh, the Corinthians from Rome, right? Anyway, uh, Pentaneus, head of the Alexandrian school, ascribed Hebrews to the apostle Paul, and then, uh, although he did observe that contrary to Paul's custom in his other epistles, there's no salutation identifying him as the author. At the end of the second century, Clement of Alexandria, a student of Pantaneus, was quoted by Eusebius as saying that Paul wrote Hebrews originally in Hebrew and that Luke translated it into Greek for a Hellenistic Jewish audience. Clement stated that it was this fact, Luke's translation, that accounted for the stylistic similarities between Hebrews and Luke-Acts. Problem though, and everyone admits it to this day, uh, this Greek cannot be a translation of a Hebrew original because the play on words and the other things, they work in Greek, they don't work in Hebrew. Uh, He conjectured that Paul did not prefix his name to the epistle since the Jews were prejudiced and suspicious of him. That makes sense. Um, The oldest extant text of Hebrews is found in Papyri 46 where it occurs immediately following Romans, most likely due to its length, in a 14-letter Pauline collection. By the middle of the 3rd century, Origen allowed for Pauline influence on the thoughts of the epistle, but he ascribed the style and the actual writing to someone else. And uh, there's a long quote there. I'm going to let that go. He says, who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. (laughs) God knows. The statement of some who have gone before us is that Clement, bishop of the Romans, wrote the epistle. Others of Luke, the author of the Gospel of Acts, of the Gospel in Acts, wrote it. So here's Origen saying, uh, a lot of people think Luke wrote this book, but then it got ignored because for centuries we have the tradition that Luke was a Gentile. Bleak interpreted Origen. I'm going to skip past that. Paul did use an amanuensis. We know that. All right, I'm running out of time. Origen was the first to suggest the theory that the thoughts were from Paul, but the composition was from someone else. In this way, he sought to reconcile the two disparate views that came down to him. Namely, some said Paul was the author and others that other Christian teachers wrote it. So thus, when Origen says that the tradition handed down to him included the possibility of Lucan authorship, it is clear that he means independent Lucan authorship, not as a translator or amanuensis. So... um, the Alexandrian tradition regarding authorship continued to grow so that by the 4th century Paul was regarded as the author either directly or indirectly. And uh, there. Turning to the Western church, apparently no tradition concerning Pauline authorship existed. Rather, in the late 2nd and 3rd centuries, Tertullian made reference to the epistle as having been written by Barnabas. I can even show you some of those. Uh, maybe next week I'll bring up some of Tertullian's writings. In the Roman church, there was likewise no tradition of Pauline authorship until very late. Clement of Rome made the first reference to the epistle in his letters to the Corinthians, but did not posit Pauline authorship. The Muratorian canon referred to 13 letters of Paul, did not list Hebrews, thus giving evidence of the Roman church to not regard Paul as the author. Shepherd of Hermas, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Gaius of Rome, Hippolytus, they all made use of Hebrews, but none of them ascribed its authorship to Paul. Only towards the end of the 4th century that Pauline authorship began to be accepted in the West and uh, Hebrews gained a canonical position. I already talked about Eusebius. 
And he talks about 14 letters of Paul, but then he talks about Hebrews being disputed. Athanasius included Hebrews among the Pauline epistles. All right, Jerome. Towards the close of the 4th century, Jerome tied together several strands of information that had come down to him. First, Hebrews was disputed as Pauline on stylistic grounds. Second, Tertullian considered Barnabas the author. Third, others had suggested Luke or Clement as the author. And so, uh, fourth, Paul may have been omitted his name since he was in disrepute with the readers. That was Jerome. Although he then, in the Vulgate, identified Hebrews as being from Paul. All right. Anyway, that tradition through the Middle Ages, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, in his prologue, he wrote a commentary on Hebrews. He accepted Pauline authorship along with the theory of a Hebrew original that was translated into Greek by Luke. See, nobody through all the centuries could get over the fact that the language was so different. How did this happen then? With the dawn of the Reformation came a reversion to the skepticism of the patristic era concerning Pauline authorship. And so uh, in the 16th century, Luke, Luther championed Apollos, while Calvin preferred Luke or Clement. In the uh, 17th century, Grotius suggested Luke and authorship, and really more people should have paid attention to Hugo Grotius. Authorship of Hebrews became the first to put forth linguistic evidence comparing Luke and Hebrews. And he did a, just a brief little work comparing 10 verbs, 10 words and phrases, and uh, David Allen built on that with hundreds of expressions. Uh, anyway, and then on into the 20th century. <laughs> in the 20th century, a flurry of uh, theories regarding authorship. Oddly enough, Harnack thought that Priscilla was the author. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? We've got to get some girl authors in the Bible, by the way. I mean, come on. And then finally, in 1976, J.M. Ford proposed the last theory of the century that Mary, the mother of Jesus, assisted by Luke and John, wrote the book. Where do they come up with this? Okay, well, people have books to write, okay? <laughs> so there they go. All right, well, enough on that. We'll uh, pick up on this next week. I want to talk about the recipients, demonstrate that they are priests because the language of the priesthood is throughout this book. And then uh, we'll go on to introduce the book with the dominant themes, okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I thank you for this book. And we just... Barely got a start on the introduction, Father. There's so much more in front of us. And whoever wrote it, Father, Paul or Barnabas or Luke or someone, we don't even know. Whoever wrote it, your Holy Spirit inspired it. And, uh, and the power of this book is going to come alive and, and shape each one of us. We're going to be operating in our heavenly priesthood. We're going to be operating before the throne of grace. And we're going to do so ministering as our Savior did. And we're gonna, our eyes are going to be open to prayer in such a way that it's more than just gimme, 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 or I need, I need, I need. That prayer is so much bigger than just uh, uh, begging for stuff. And Father, uh, I pray that we'll understand how we operate before your throne of grace, offering up sweet-smelling savers, offering up sacrifices in such a way that your Son receives the maximum glory. I thank you, Father, that we can introduce this book in a way like this, then, then we can go to the Lord's table and take part in communion and recognize that even as He was faithful in His realm, it's now made us possible to serve in these capacities as well. So, Father, thank You again for this day and this truth. I thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
All right, we are going to move